Okay, let's get into this thing. Week two of a series we're calling White Flag. Um, it's been a series on surrender, a series really on running, and it looks at the, the story of, of a life of a guy. One of the most famous runners in all of scripture, his name is Jonah. He has an entire book written about him, but I say entire book, it's really four chapters, so it's not that big of a feat, but uh, it's a big famous story, and it's famous because it involves a big giant fish and a big giant whale, and it's a story that you grew up hearing. It, it, it preaches really well in the kids' rooms. Unfortunately, it doesn't, that, that um, Ability doesn't transfer all that well into adults um, because adults tend to hear this story and be like, ah, I mean, come on, right? Like you expect me to believe a lot. Every Easter, Brent, you talk about Jesus rising from the dead and, and the whole resurrection bit there. And I can kind of swallow it for Easter. And then you get into kind of other, uh, some of these other stories. Can we just talk about principles of love and, and love and grace and, and all of that? And I, I totally get that. I, and I mentioned this last week. I was raised in a, in a church environment where... Um, it, Jonah was taught to us as, as if it really happened. This is um, historical, not historical fiction. Um, and yet, last week, I, I wanted to definitely give you permission to view this. Even, even if that's too much, if that's too hard to swallow, because there's a pun in there, if that's too hard to swallow, then I, I wanted to give you a little bit of permission to view it as really a parable of human nature. Um, that's how a lot of uh, uh, theologians kind of view this thing. Uh, it says so much about us, and it's so. I, it, and if, if that feels like it takes away something from the story, think about this: this story preceded Jesus by about 700, 750 years, uh, and Jesus preceded us by about two thousand years. So we're talking about an ancient document, an ancient story, an ancient parable that is twenty seven hundred years old. And yet, I mentioned last week, as we read through the story, we can see ourselves in this. Like, not much has changed, though so much has changed. So much technology has changed, so much advancement in science, and we know so much more, and, and the life that we live is probably soft con- con- compared to kind of how they lived or whatever, and yet the, the tendency towards rebellion, like nobody has to teach us how to rebel or how to say no or how to get what we want or at least go against something that's calling us towards something different, right? Nobody taught your kids to tell you no. They just started doing it. And when they did it, you weren't like, you didn't go to your husband or your spouse or whatever, or boyfriend and be like, did you do this, right? Nobody blames this on anybody else. All of a sudden, you just look at whoever you're doing life with and be like, oh man, they learned how to say no. They learned they learned how to not do what mom asked them to do. And it, it oh, takes like, what, six months, nine months, 12? I don't know what it is. It's not long. It's like almost before they can uh, even learn to speak, they, they, they gather this, you want me to do something. I don't want to do that. I'm going to choose to do something else. What are you going to do about it? All right? That's the idea of rebellion. That's the idea of running away. Uh, and we've all done this uh, in interpersonal relationships. And, and in a sense, we've, uh, many of us have done this with God as well. We've kind of ran from him. Uh, and this story is about a guy who ran from him, right? The story of Jonah is um, he's a prophet who was called not to the nation of Israel, which is unique, the only prophet that we know of not called to go speak to the nation of Israel, uh, but instead to go to the nation of Assyria, to a, a city called Nineveh, and preach against them. And they had this like world reputation for being really, really bad people. Um, and so he's like, well, I don't want to do that. And so I'm going to get in a boat and I'm going to go in the opposite direction, which is what we always do. Uh, we said that rebellion, when, when we enter into the first stages of rebellion, we, we run to the dumbest things. We do the strangest things. 
he got in a boat, right, which is like super unstable, especially in that time, super unsafe. If you were running from the sovereign God, you wouldn't get in a boat. Why would you not stay on dry land? And, and how convenient that there's a boat waiting to go in the very opposite direction, taking him to Spain when he was supposed to go east, right? Um, so in the opposite direction, there always is that in life. There's always something waiting for you, waiting to take you far away from where you're supposed to be. And, and, and it's not coincidence. It's just that's how like rebellion stuff kind of works. And, so, and we all have our own story. We all have our own, I can tell you this, or this is how, I, uh, this is how it ha- has looked for me or is looking for me, because we're all running uh, e- even currently at some level uh, from something or um, someone. And um, maybe you're not like a personal God kind of person, but, and, and so like the idea of me saying, okay, we've all run from God, you're like, yeah, I don't really believe in a personal God. Okay, you've run from your own conscience though. You've run in such a way that you know, I know I should be doing this, but I'm not doing this. And so, and you do something completely in the opposite direction in that way. For maybe for you, like, it's not wrong that you guys think that thing or, or act, act in that way. It's not wrong um, that, uh, that I don't want to do that, but I, I, and, and it's just temporary. Listen, someday I'll probably want that, but right now I don't. In this season, I actually enjoy being the rebel a little bit, like, it strikes me as original. I feel unique. I feel like I'm not conforming to the pattern of what everybody else kind of wants me to be. And so whether it's hipster or indie or something, I just, I choose this path and I feel unique in this path. And the story of Jonah reminds us that this story is 2,700 years old and it's really not all that unique, but okay, let's just go with it for a little bit on this. And, and, and we think, that, you know what, I'm gonna choose this because this feels like my best life now. And we schedule our surrender Here's what we do. We say something like this. Listen, this is temporary for me. I'm going to do it for a little bit. But listen, once I get married, then, I'll, then it'll all settle down in that way, right? Um, once I graduate um, or uh, once I get through college, um, then, then God, I'll come back. I'll, you know, once I have kids, this is a really popular one. Um, people grow up in, uh, through high school. Uh, they stop going to church when mom stops making them go. They go to college, they do their thing, then they get married, and um, they kind of explore, and then they start having kids a little bit later, and they're like, then they come back in church, because they're like, uh, could you just teach my kids about God? Here they are, and I'll drink your coffee and be back in an hour, is that about right? Um, and, and we're totally fine with that, we love that, we're taking your kids right now, we'll, we'll do that, we'll, we'll play that game, but it's funny, because we schedule our surrender around that thing. We think, when, as soon as this takes place, that's when I'll come back, that's when I'll return, that's when I'll fix things and make things right, or whatever right? Or maybe it's a work deal. It's a shady thing at work, right? You know, it's wrong. There's like ethics involved in this. You wouldn't want everybody to know the decisions that you're making, right? You confide in a few people just because, you know, you're trying to work things out and and they're kind of on the fence about it. And you're like, you know what? I just want these deals to go through. Once these deals are through, I won't act like this again. I won't, I I know it's off the books and I know I wouldn't want everybody to know about it. So I'm going to do it this one time because it's such a financial benefit for me to do this, but I promise to myself or to my spouse or my, my, my partner at work or whatever, or, or God, if, he, if I believe in that, that this is it. This is the last one, but just give me, give me another week. Give me another two weeks or something like that. So we, we schedule it and we do that sort of thing. And we say, okay, good, God, look, I don't, uh, don't want to pray about this. I'm just going to do it and then, and then get past it and do that. So 
what we are going to look at today, I want to jump into Jonah chapter 2. Last week we did, I pretty much read through the entire book, or not the entire book, but the entire first chapter of Jonah. We're going to read through the entire second chapter. It's only 10 verses uh, long uh, today, or this, this portion that we're going to read is about 10 verses long. And I, I, t- I coined it as Jonah's white flag prayer. This is his white flag prayer. This is when he realizes, I'm in too deep and uh, I've got nowhere to turn, and um, this is what I need to do. We know at the end of, uh, end of chapter one, uh, remember the story, uh, they're on the boat, the, the, the storm picks up, and the sailors are like, what are we gonna do? Everybody pray to your own God. You, we don't really care uh, theology-wise who you're praying to, but just pray, because we're so desperate. Figure out, somebody did something wrong, and we've gotta resolve the situation, and uh, Jonah's sleeping downstairs, and they go grab him, and they pull him upstairs, and he confesses. He's like, hey, it's me, guys. Um, I, I am, I'm fleeing to Tarshish. I'm fleeing to the opposite side of the world when God wants me to go this way. The only solution really is to throw me overboard. And they at first are like, no, we're not going to do that. And then they finally like, what other option do we have? They toss him overboard. The storm quickly seizes. They look at Jonah kind of floating away and they think to themselves, should we pick him up or should we just, I don't know. They just let him go, right? And he sinks down. And the last verse of chapter one is when the fish comes. It says that God sends a fish to swallow up Jonah. He's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That's where we pick this up. This is verse one of chapter um, two. From inside the fish, and again, again, permission to be like metaphorical fish. Fine, whatever, I don't care. Let's, let's talk about the desperate situation. Think of what you would be thinking if this were happening to you. I am, I am now, I, I thought I was gonna die. I watched the boat cross over into the horizon. All of a sudden I see a big fish and I go, this is it, this is it. And, and then I find myself in the belly of this fish. Think about what you would pray in a situation like that. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, which in my notes I wrote, I bet he did, right? That's like, <laughs> yep. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. In my distress, I called to the Lord. In my distress, I called to the Lord. Listen, that phrase right there, is 2,700 years old. And yet every single one of us in times of personal distress are tempted or we actually go through with bottle rocket prayers to God. When the lights show up in our rearview mirror from the cop, we immediately, oh God, you know, prayers are going up as fast as possible. In our distress... Whether we're religious or not, whether our theology is all correct, whether we have read the book of Jonah or have not read the book of Jonah or have read any of the Bible, but we attended church once and I'm pretty sure God's for me. So please, and and he feels bigger than me. So please, in my distress, in our distress, maybe not every time, but golly, if life gets hard enough, how often do we cry out, for help, staring at a pregnancy test in the back of a police car, staring at the phone, knowing you have to call your wife, confess something before she finds out, on your way home to tell your husband something that you think he might already know. In your distress, no matter what you had believed about God beforehand, and no matter what you had convinced yourself about God beforehand, and regardless of how you had justified your sin and your obedience and your running away and my, my, my plan for surrender, my scheduled surrender or whatever, in your distress, you called out to God. Like this is, this is why I think this is so, such a powerful message for 
if they decided that we're going to include this book in our Old Testament scriptures because of how well it speaks to human nature. They knew so deeply that in our distress, we have a tendency to reach out to the thing that we think is kind of a last cry for help or a last minute endeavor or whatever. When our backs are against the wall, when there's nobody else to run or nobody else to turn to, nowhere else to run in your distress, I run out to God. This is us. This is describing, insert our name in here, insert our situation, our created circumstance. Circumstantial brokenness overpowers our intellect. For There are some people who are like, I don't even believe in God. Put them in a tough enough situation, and they start like, well, you know, I mean, gosh, if there's like a 1% chance that that's true, it feels like a safe risk. Circumstantial brokenness overpowers our theology, and circumstantial brokenness overpowers our resistance. Let me finish that verse for you. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. And he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. He's repeating himself here. And you listened to my cry. Anytime in Hebrew literature there's a repeat of things, it's always meant to emphasize. It's always meant to to, to, to just make sure that you don't miss it in that way. And what he's trying to emphasize here is that God listens to the desperate cry of help from desperate people who are in desperate circumstances of their own creation. God listens to the desperate cry of desperate kids who are crying out from circumstances that they created themselves, and he listens to them. Even even if your entire life you've basically given the finger to God or basically said, you know what? Mind your own business. I don't really have a care at all kind of about you. You don't even exist in my mind, so I don't even know why I'm talking about you, right? Right? I'll do my thing the way that I want to do my thing. And now I need him. So now in my distress, I cry out to him. And the book of Jonah, the thing that I think is so captured for us is that even in this moment, this is what's so beautiful about it. Even in this moment, God listens to the cry of desperate people. Because here's the thing. We oftentimes think of um, God as a better version of us, right? Right? Um, and let me, let me illustrate that, right? We, we, we feel like we hear this phrase, we are created in the image of God, and we are not perfect, self-proclaimed. Everybody knows that. I'm better than some people, but I'm not as good as God, right? That's how we kind of phrase this. And God's a better version of us. If we had to do everything right, you know, we're going to fail, but a, a person like God would probably get it all right. And we are so unaware of his otherness in relation to us, his goodness in spite of our sin and our brokenness and our blindness to actually be and do what is truly good, we look at this thing and we think to ourselves, if somebody had rejected me over and over and over and over again and basically said, mind your own business, mind your own business, mind your own business, and then fell into a circumstance of their own creation and then reached out for help with us, we would hit the button on the side of our phone that sends them to voicemail. Do you know what I mean? And we would say, oh, I'm so sorry. I thought you had it all under control. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. You said you didn't need my help. We would play these games, and we'd like to think that we wouldn't, right? 
We'd like to think, oh, we're so generous, we'd be willing to overlook it, but we don't even do that for people that we love and care for and they're related to us and like by blood we're supposed to do that kind of stuff, right? We play these manipulative games and God says, I, don't, I listen to the cries of desperate people who find themselves in desperate, desperate situations that were created by their own stupid choice in their circumstances. That, you guys, that is, that is for some of us, we look at it and be like, well, that's a really nice characteristic of God. For others of us who are in the middle of a circumstance like that, that is a lifeline. That is a picture of the gracious, graciousness of God and the deep grace that is involved that, that supersedes any sort of like, okay, this is, I don't know what I would do. I, like, I, this is so mind-blowing. This doesn't make any sense. Why would he act like that? You're right. You underestimate the grace of God. God is generous with his grace. If you're taking notes or writing things down, this would be the first like big thing, right? God is generous with his grace. He, no matter how far down the road you've gone, no matter how far in the deep water you are, as he's gonna talk about in just a minute, his legs are tangled up in seaweed. I mean, he's just trying to describe the, the depth of the, of, the, of the pit that he's fallen into or whatever. And yet he still hears and he still acts and he still loves. It's this daily invitation to come back, to come back, to come back, and to surrender your will to me. Verse three, you hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. Now, it is interesting for a moment because um, you could almost read this as Jonah's blaming God, like, you did this to me, but I, the, you can't really get there looking at the first two verses of it. He's not blaming God in this scenario. If you started with verse three, some of you have started with verse three. Bad circumstances happen in life. You find yourself like all of the things are stacked up against you and the odds went completely in the opposite direction. And all the things that could have gone right didn't go right. And you're looking for somebody to blame and you don't want to blame yourself. And so what you do is you blame others and then eventually you get to the spot where you blame God. And so then you would say, you are the one that sank me into the deep. You are the one in the very heart. But that's not what Jonah's doing here. He prefaces this Ultimately, he starts with the grace because here's what had happened, right? There's, that's a totally different approach. You hurled me into the deep into the very heart of the seas and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Very, very uh, image-laden language here to try and illustrate the overwhelmingness. Not like I was in a tight spot and you helped me out. That doesn't like sell us on it, okay? He's doing more than that for us. It's very poetic in this way. I'm speaking with clarity in this moment. I see that you are behind the chaos. You are behind the calamity. I have been banished from your sight, verse four, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. At what point in this story do you think Jonah finally broke? We all have a breaking point. We all have something where we, we go into it with a preconceived notion of here's, here's what I'm about, and then we, we break, right? You go, uh, if you've ever done sort of like a, uh, nutrition uh, plan or a workout thing. You just, you watch, remember Biggest Loser, the show? There would be, like, at some point, you'd take bets on when's this person gonna break? They're just gonna have a meltdown. They're gonna talk about how their dad was terrible and, and they're gonna cry all over. And uh, what's the, Jillian Michaels is gonna come over and she's gonna be really nice for like five minutes and she's been just a total, anyways, uh, <laughs> the rest of the show. And then she's like, tell me about, you know, this, all this kind of stuff. And that's the breaking point, right? So when do you think, Jonah broke in this moment. Like the third day in the fish, the second day in the fish. Because in my opinion, it was probably 
like the sailors are doing the whole, okay, we're going to do it on three. Ready? One, two. Are we throwing him on three? Hold on. Are we throwing him on three? Or are, we, are we doing three and then throwing him? What's the plan? And he's like, you know what? This is it. This is it. I'm, 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 going, I'm going to die in this moment, right? I think it came early on. Do you remember as a kid the moment that you knew that punishment was inevitable? Do you remember when mom would say the phrase, wait until your dad got home, and then dad's car was in the driveway, and you realized, now is it. This is when it happens. Earlier, it was all threats, and it was maybe dad has to work late tonight, and I'll have to go to bed before, and they'll forget it in the morning. But as soon as the garage door opens and the car comes to the driveway, you're thinking, here we go. This is it. And my dad would come home, and my mom, at some point, just stopped trying to deal with me, right? And, uh, and she would say, wait till your dad gets home. And uh, my dad would come home, and he would say, uh, you know, go to your room. I'm, I'll be in there in, in a minute. Longest minute in my life, that kind of thing. And uh, my dad it would come in, and he would have some sort of a belt or a spoon. Now, here's the deal. Listen, I'm not prescribing spanking. I'm just telling you what happened. And you know what? Save your emails. I deserved every one that I got, okay? <laughs> he was a great dad. I think I turned out all right. So whatever, okay? I'm not, I'm not advocating for anything. Anyways, in that moment, though, uh, you do some pretty serious negotiating as a kid, don't you? You remember that? When, they, when he opens the door and kind of like stands there ominously a little bit, like, are we filming this? Because this is intense. I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. I'll eat, every, I'll eat all of my peas. I'll eat Brittany's peas. I'll eat every pea in the house if that's what you want me to eat. And we negotiate and we negotiate and negotiate. And I don't know if this ever happened with you, but negotiating worked exactly zero times when it had gotten to that level. At no point was my dad like, okay, great. I'm glad we've learned our lesson. You know what I mean? <laughs> At that point, it was too far. I could negotiate with mom. She was a little softer. But with dad, there was no negotiating. There was, there was none. It was like, this is an inevitability at this point. And there's going to be a little bit of discipline involved because I need to associate some pain uh, with this rebellion. So that the next time that you think about saying no to mom, that you remember, oh, well, this is what happens when that occurs. So I guess I'm going to go through with this, and this is going to happen. Listen, here's what Jonah is figuring out. In the first two verses, he talks about the grace that has been extended to God, that God is gracious and generous in his grace. And then following that point, he would realize, he would put in a phrase, that you were kind of behind all of this anyways. That, uh, that you either caused this to happen or you allowed this to happen and that is a very touchy subject, and that is one that probably requires its own series about like suffering and pain and all the stuff that happens in life that I just can't solve for you in 20 minutes of time. Um, but, and I don't think the point of Jonah was to solve it, but to point out that there's discipline and there's grace. There's grace, and then it's coupled in this instance with discipline, that God is generous with his grace and he seems to be pretty thorough in his discipline. And we don't like that piece of God. We like a God who is all grace. Um, 
and even I'm, I'm sitting around the fire last night with Kylie and talking, she's asking me what I'm talking about. And I have to try and I like, if you got me talking about the grace of God, I go on forever. And then I start talking about discipline and I, I caveat and caveat and caveat. And well, you know, cause we don't like the idea of a God who disciplines um, because we're, that's like, uh, well, why? How, and how does he do that? And why we don't like discipline from somebody that we don't see as an authority figure too, right? So if God is meaningless to me and then I suffer through some pain and it's a result of God, or we hear people say, well, that's God's judgment on you. Well, I don't really believe in that God. So why, that sounds like stupid discipline. That sounds like um, a really bad God, right? Um, And in this instance, I think it's important to understand that God is all love. Um, And that love, if you're a parent, you know, involves generous amounts of grace and thorough amounts of, of, uh, of discipline. Not in the form sometimes of, uh, of the, you know, varying amounts of pain or whatever. I, I understand, I, I get that. But a parent who never disciplines their kid, it'd be hard to say that they truly do love them. They're just super gracious, but there's no, they just allow them to be whatever at all times. And, and there's no uh, associating pain with, um, with, with rebellion. Like, are you, do you really love that kid at that point? Um, and again, this is, if you're not a Christian, then this is, I'm just letting you in a, a peek back on what is going on with this. People who were compiling the Old Testament thought it would be important to understand that God is generous just with his grace. And yet, when it comes to the circumstances of our own rebellion, uh, oftentimes lets us experience those to a thorough degree. Here, here's a couple more examples that show up in the Old Testament uh, in scripture. Um, Babylon comes into the southern kingdom and basically takes over the whole thing. It's, it's one of the world empires, and, and it's historical. This isn't just like biblical stuff. This is history stuff. Takes a bunch of people from surrounding nations, Israel being one of them, takes the best and the brightest back with them into Babylon. It's called the Babylonian exile for 70 years. 70 years. You think it took them 70 years to realize, oof, we screwed up. Probably took them seven or less and yet it happened for 70 years. Israel coming out of Egypt, they have this altercation in the desert on their way to the promised land. And God says, all right, you're going to wander now for 40 years. 40 years? Why are we wandering for 40 years? 40 minutes is long enough to wander to be like, okay, we get it. We get it. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm throwing my discipline because, yes, I am generous with my grace, but I'm throwing my discipline because I love you, not to pay you back. I'm not doing this to pay you back. I'm doing this to win you back because I want something for you. Moses uh, was like a super uh, big figure in the Old Testament. The, the, the first five books, the Pentateuch or whatever, he, he supposedly is you know, the author behind those things or at least the, the, a piece of... Um, a major part of this, a major hero of Old Testament scripture and has this thing go on in his life and God says, I know that you've led the people out of Egypt and are leading them into the promised land, but I am going to, I am not going to allow you to enter into the promised land. You're gonna see it from a distance and somebody else is gonna take over for you. Joshua's gonna take over for you and lead them in. And we look at that and be like, ugh, we don't like discipline. Ah, cringe. Don't like it. Don't like associating uh, pain with my rebellion. Would love just extra doses of grace and I'll figure it out and I'll do it uh, for later. And that's just, 
as we see in Jonah, not kind of how life sort of works. Verse five and six, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, O Lord, my God, verse six, brought my life up from the pit. The word in a lot of translations is sheol, which um, is uh, for them their version of hell. And it's not, in the Old Testament, they didn't think of hell as a place that you uh, go when you die. It was a place of nothingness, the underrealm, the world of the dead, the place of meaninglessness. He brought me up from that pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Couple mentions of temple. And then he gets to the best part in terms of clarity. And this is really the pinnacle of the prayer. And this is kind of the closing part of it. This next verse describes the dilemma that every single person running away from God faces. But he says it in a way that condenses our experience down to just one single statement. Here's what he says, verse eight. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit or give up or lose or abandon or don't experience God's love for them. What do you mean in this way? He's saying that when you run from God, it's because you're running to something else. You're running to someone else. You're running to an opportunity. You're running to a lifestyle. You're running to entertainment. And when they arrive at what their life has been devoted to, they realize it's not exactly what they thought it was. And this is described as college and beyond. This is described as so much of of life. We run towards things that we think are going to provide us with fulfillment. We get there. We finally achieve them. And then not exactly what they, that we thought that they were. They were oversold and under-delivered in this way. And what we've given up isn't worth what we've gotten in return. And in your despair, in your despair in those moments, you do not cry out to the thing that you pursued when we choose not to pursue a relationship with our Heavenly Father. We cry out in our distress. I called out to Him. He realizes in this moment, this is Jonah like the, the, the mindset of Jonah. I realized what I was clinging to was a worthless idol. I was clinging to like my life and security and safety and I really didn't think it would work. An Israel prophet going into uh, a non-Israelite nation, why would they even listen to me? I don't wanna put myself in that situation. I'm sort of in self-protective mode. Um, I'm gonna do what I want, not what you want for me. And so therefore I clung to a worthless idol. I clung. When you run, what you're running oftentimes to is to, according to this 2,700-year-old passage, a worthless idol. that It will not deliver that which you think it might, and that which you think is worth giving up everything to go and do. But I, verse 9, with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited out Jonah onto dry land. Verse one, and I read that as if like, that's just like totally normal, right guys? This happens all the time. You see this in Columbia. So if you go to the park, usually on Wednesdays, this kind of happens. I mean, I, I get it. I understand. Verse one, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. See, this is the story. This is why this is like, okay, this is the transition. This is when he hits rock bottom. He realizes I've clung so hard to worthless idols. I give up, I turn, and God in his generous grace offers me a second word for a second time. There's thorough discipline that's already been involved. Now I can associate pain, the pain of what I've gone through with, that's what happens when I pursue worthless idols at the expense of a relationship with my heavenly father. And in his grace, 
comes a word of the Lord a second time. And what do you think he did this time? What do you think his response was this time? That is what we're going to talk about next week. That's why I hope you come back. (laughs) But in the meantime, how many of us, how many of us could look at kind of where we've been, the pain that we've been through, the circumstances, by the way, of our own making, Perhaps we've started with like verse three and said, you've done this to me, you've done this to me, you've done this to me. But like in the quietness of our own hearts, we've created the mess for ourselves and we've experienced the pain and we've clung to, we figured out, we've lived, we're long, uh, long enough along the way, we're old enough to figure out worthless idols. I thought this would bring me all the satisfaction, the joy, the things in life that I needed and it hasn't and it doesn't. And, and uh, I get a chance to... Uh, hear the word of the Lord a second time, to know that the invitation is still out there, that he still hears when he cry out in distress. He's not like us who would say, you know what, you're too far gone. And the, 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 the attitude that you had towards me, man, that was really bad. So you got a lot of making up to do, right? He's not, that's not how it works. It's not what it looks like. That's not what the grace looks like. He's a God of love, a God of grace, a God of discipline, because he loves us, not to pay us back, but to win us back. Let's pray. Father, we can all place this in uh, different areas of our life or seasons of our life. Maybe it's a current season. Maybe it's a previous season that we just, sometimes we go through like really, really painful things and then we, uh, we box it away and we really never um, have taken the time to kind of process our way through it and evaluate it and uh, that feels like, a, uh, like a, a thing that we do with a counselor or a thing that we do with um, you know, a, a trusted friend or a voice of reason for us. Uh, and, and, and that's all great and true and, 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 fi- and fine, but like at, some, at some point we, we look back too and we, we ask ourselves, what do, we, what do I learn from this? And what, do I, what are you trying to teach me? What kind of worthless idol have I found myself trying to cling to? And reminding ourselves where that leads us to this emptiness, and yet you provide hope and a sense of forward progress towards reestablishing a relationship with you. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard today and the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.